Haseeb Qureshi is an entrepreneur and investor. As a teenager, Haseeb played poker professionally through the online poker bubble. His path from poker to software entrepreneurship has been explored in previous episodes. In 2007, Haseeb and I met at an online poker table. As we battled each other for thousands of dollars, Haseeb and I realized we shared an affinity for obnoxious screen names, obnoxious online avatars, and the city of Austin, Texas. We were both living in Austin, and we met each other in the real world. In our earliest days, Haseeb and I were not friends. It was a strange time. We were disembodied minds, drifting on the internet, attached mostly to the fluctuating balances of our Full Tilt Poker and Poker Stars accounts. This was not a time for friendship. It was a time for ruthless, modern online competition. Throughout the history of poker, alliances have always been fickle. And online, backstabbing and deception was an art that had barely been explored. Any true friendship was a missed opportunity to exploit a competitor. The duplicity of the online poker world knew no limits, and our sheltered, posh existence of teenagers with great parents, food on the table every evening, and no reason to worry about anything became shattered by the daily tumult of complete financial instability. Online poker was in a bubble. In the early days of a bubble, success comes easy. You have to be a fool to fail. When a bubble pops, the ocean washes back to the sea, and we see who is left without any clothing. The poker bust wiped me out. Not just financially, but emotionally. In a month, I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, but more importantly, I lost my identity. After doing nothing but playing poker for years, what was I left with? What durable skills had I developed? What friends did I have to turn to? What was my ideology? What was my vision for my own future? And as I plummeted into despair, Haseeb rose like a meteor through the world of heads-up poker, thriving on the rise in popularity of Pot Limit Omaha, a game whose theoretical complexity suited Haseeb better than the rudimentary game of No Limit Hold'em. The bigger the stacks, the bigger the decision trees. And the bigger the decision trees, the more edge Haseeb had over his opponents. As a poker player, regardless of whether you succeed or fail, the banality of what you are actually doing eventually catches up to you. The best players of poker are able to put an athletic framing on the game. Yes, you are competing on a zero-sum basis with a 52-card deck that was invented last century. Yes, your innovation is measured in the smallest increment. But in some ways, that is the beauty of the game. We don't need a revolution in the game of basketball, because to appreciate the dynamic of basketball is to appreciate the dynamic of humans. And the same can be said of poker. Unfortunately, the successful online poker player must eventually have their own reality shattered. Because to be a successful poker player, you must be rigorous and critical. You will eventually be forced to step back and say, What is this thing that I'm doing every day? How have I become hooked to a screen? I don't know how that screen works. What are these numbers? Are they fabricated? How do they control my emotions so thoroughly? Who is running this thing? Haseeb grew tired of poker. He wrote a book about the game to memorialize his thoughts and then abandoned it. 
He studied philosophy and literature, searching for something new in the historical musings of humanity. He traveled Europe, working as a farmer to reconnect with the physical world. He discovered the effective altruism movement. Finding no solace in his poker spoils, Hasib gave away most of his money and started from scratch. As he rebuilt himself, he found software engineering and charted a path to San Francisco, where he and I reconnected. In this episode, Hasib joins me for a discussion of software, philosophy, poker, and the nature of bubbles. Hasib and I spoke in person at Cloudflare, and our conversation was centered on the nature of bubbles. Hasib and I have lived through four major bubbles. The dot-com boom, poker, the 2008 financial crisis, and the crypto bubble. Throughout these bubbles, the mediums change, but never does the message. Human beings are deeply irrational, tribalistic, and emotional. A few quick notes from Software Engineering Daily Land. The Find Collabs $5,000 hackathon ends this weekend. Find Collabs is the company that I'm working on. And if you want to enter into that hackathon, we've got plenty of time left for you to compete. And all you have to do is go to findcollabs.com and submit a project. That can be a software project, a project around cryptocurrencies, an art project, a music project. Find Collabs is a place to post your projects and meet collaborators. Also, the new version of Software Daily, our app and ad-free subscription service, is online at softwaredaily.com. And we've got a Find Collabs going for Software Daily. We're looking for help with Android engineering, QA, machine learning, and several more tasks. We'd love to get your help. So you can find all those details in the show notes. Let's get on to this conversation with Hasib. I want to kind of ease into it by just thanking Hasib because Hasib basically had this idea for the meetup for the the, the conversation style. The, our previous meetups, if any of you attended them, were kind of a person speaking. Uh, you know, kind of the, the classic meetup style, you know, person speaking and then, you know, presenting some stuff. And, and you know, the podcast, if anybody listens to Software Engineering Daily, is two people talking. So we wanted to bring that experience to the, the real world. So Hasib's offhanded comment is responsible for, for this event tonight. Hasib is, is very good at insightful offhand comments. So you're, you're in for a treat. <laughs> and also one disclaimer, which apparently is important because I'm at Cloudflare, when we say crypto tonight, we're actually referring to cryptocurrency. Apparently, it's it's uh, that's a that's normally a gaff within Cloudflare, and so we're going to commit a lot of gaffes. And two other other thank yous. I want to thank to uh, Sudo Shirt for the pizza tonight. That's S U D O S H I R T. It's a great place to get interesting tech shirts. And also, one other event I want to mention is our meetup Find Collabs Hackathon. On Saturday, if you want to find out about that, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash hackathon. And I think it's time to get into the conversation. So I just, I, I want to give people some context for why Hasib is a really important friend to me and, and just, a, just a very interesting person to me personally. And that's because I, I've known him for a very long time and he's actually come in and out of my life in a couple ways. So I actually, I met Hasib when we were both uh, poker players. We were playing online. And uh, this is around the time we were, we were both teenagers, and teenagers can 
can play could play poker online back in the day. This is actually the first bubble that we're going to talk about. There was a bubble in the online poker world. So, you know, Hasib and I were taking advantage of that bubble. Basically, if you remember this time when there was kind of the World Series of Poker on TV and everybody's playing poker, all your friends are playing poker, everybody's excited about poker. That was a very good time to play poker online. It was very easy. You could just learn some basic strategies and then and then get get quite good and, and make some decent money. And so Hasib and I had both done that completely independently of each other. And, you know, many kids were doing that online. And so I was also going to going to college at the time. And I, so I was home for, I, I remember pretty distinctly, I was home for some break. I believe it was winter break. And I was, I was playing poker online. So that situation is, is me sitting at a laptop and, and playing a bunch of online poker tables all at the same time. And so I'm sitting at all these t- virtual tables playing for, for several thousand dollars at, at each table. And this guy, or this individual with this really obnoxious avatar uh, sits down in, at a bunch of these tables. So if, if you know anything about online poker, you play multiple tables at once. So we were both on like six or seven tables together. And I'm just like seeing this, this really obnoxious avatar. I think it was like a, like a sun with a That's smiley right, face. Yeah. It, was like a, it was a sun with a giant smiley face shining <laughs> down on a flower. That was my and his screen name is too, I think, too crude to, to bring up. Yeah, probably. I was, I was like, I was 17 at the time, so it's, it's okay. <laughs> anyway, crude screen names aside, this poker player that I happened to be facing on six or seven of my tables was extremely formidable. And I remember like, who is this person with the obnoxious avatar and the crude screen name who keeps taking pots from me? And I, you know, I hovered my mouse over... And what was interesting about PokerStars, you hover your mouse over the other person's avatar. You could see the location, which is kind of weird, but I saw they were in Austin. And I was like, clearly this person is as young, at least as young as me. Turned out he was two years younger. And so it was a young person from Austin that happened to be at a bunch of my poker tables. That was a rare phenomenon. That was the only time I had actually ever seen that. Somebody else in Austin who was a quote unquote regular. And so Hasib and I ended up meeting in person. And this was when we were teenagers again. We were poker players. And this is, by the way, long before we started programming at all. I didn't know anything about computer science. I didn't know anything about software. And, uh, and Hasib was in the same boat. And so uh, we ended up meeting in person. You know, at one point, we were thinking about living together. And we actually, uh, you know, we were going to live together. This was back when we were, again, when we were both teenagers. And I flaked out. And the reason I actually flaked out is because I, I had this really big losing streak at poker. And so when I had this big losing streak, I kind of, I kind of decided, I took a step back and I was like, this, this is really painful, you know? Like, it, it was sort of like, you know, if you can imagine like a college athlete, like suffering an injury that kind of renders them immobile and unable to like compete in the big leagues. It's not exactly like that, but that's kind of like how you feel when you go through these like really big, like losing streaks because you you go from being able to play at really high stakes to being, to being forced to the lower stakes. And so anyway, Asim and I didn't live together. And he actually went on to, to just completely dominate poker. So, you know, he was, he was one of the best heads-up, no-limit poker players in the world, which is, is saying a lot. He played for a lot of money, and uh, it, takes, it takes a certain amount of will and competency in order to do that. And, uh, and so I, I say all that as, as a preface to when we, we, we met each other in the software engineering world several years later after completely diverging paths. 
Um, and and I've, I've told that story some on the podcast. But anyway, like, you know, if you want to know about Hasib's story, like he went to a coding boot camp and then he, you know, very quickly learned to program and then and then eventually got into to cryptocurrency investing after working at Airbnb for a while. And all this stuff is online. You can you can look it up. But he's a very interesting guy. And, and we'll get into that. You know, well, the, the other side of the story is like sort of when we reconnected. So I think like you and I really fallen out of touch. I don't think we got in touch with each other. I'd known kind of just through peripherally through Facebook or whatever that you worked at Amazon, you got a degree in computer science at UT, you, you were doing podcasting. And I remember when I, when I decided that I wanted to come work in tech, moved out to Silicon Valley, got in a, like a really shitty apartment in San Francisco that cost like 850 a month for like a bunk bed that was like just a really tiny room with another guy underneath me who was also going to App Academy. And Jeff was the only guy I knew who like worked at a real like legit tech company. And so I was like, I remember second or third week at App Academy, going outside because like there was no privacy in our in our dorm, obviously. So like going outside, like on uh, it, was on, it was on like sixth sixth and uh, and Howard, like a really shitty street, like right next to a bunch of homeless, pacing back and forth on the phone with Jeff, trying to like figure out like how do I how do I get hired at a tech company? Like I I don't know if I can do it. It's really really hard. And he and I remember what Jeff told me. He told me, uh, all right, tech interviews are all bull. Okay, here's the thing. They're gonna make you do stuff like reverse a string, learn how to reverse a string, but like it's all bullshit, don't worry about it. Like you'll get a job, it's no problem. And I was like, I don't know if this guy knows what he's talking about. And that was basically how I, like it was actually in large part from your encouragement that I got the confidence to think that I could actually get a job at a legit tech company. Because when I first came out here, I mean, I had a degree in English and philosophy at a state school in Texas. I started my career as a professional poker player, quit, you know, basically from, from 21 on, like I had, I had no career experience. And I, I just looked on paper, like a, a just a, my, my resume just looked like garbage to anybody who's in the tech industry. So you were basically my only cheerleader for like the first year that I was in tech. And I think that actually went a really long way toward making me make the progress that I have. So. Yeah, first mover advantage. So, I want this conversation to to circle around the topic of bubbles because you and I have, have now both experienced kind of two bubbles that have played some prominent role in our lives. The first of which was, was the poker bubble. Uh, initially, poker was a place where you could make money very, very easily. And then it got increasingly hard. And eventually, possibly, I, I don't know the great details of this, but... I think a robot can play poker better than a human at this point. So like almost completely collapsed. And then the crypto bubble, cryptocurrency. So what are your reflections from these two bubbles? What are the similarities between the poker bubble and the crypto bubble? That is a very interesting question. So the first thing I would say is that I don't think I agree that poker was a bubble. I think uh, poker, like, so how do you define a bubble? In my mind, a bubble is a situation where basically you have a, a massive growth in the price or value of an asset, where essentially what's going on is totally untethered from the real value of whatever asset is getting a bubble formed around. And the only way that the bubble can continue is by a next layer of people basically jumping into this phenomenon, right? And everything that looks like that, every sort of you know, inverted pyramid that has to keep growing and growing in order to self-sustain, eventually runs out of people, right? And so I think what happened in poker was not so much a bubble as more like I'd say a wave, 
where essentially, you know, with with you know Chris Moneymaker and all the you know the televised uh, World Series of Poker stuff that you know ESPN playing poker all the time on the off hours, right? All that stuff basically elicited this big wave of people who came in to play poker together. And it's true that like poker suddenly became this place where there was a lot of arbitrage possible. Just by being a relatively smart and disciplined person, you can make a lot of money from people who are less smart, less disciplined with respect to the way they play poker. And there's still people who are playing poker professionally. Like, you know, poker is always and forever a zero sum game or a negative sum game because technically you're losing a little money to the house. So as, you know, on aggregate, people have to lose in poker for anything to make for to really work. But always in that distribution of outcomes, there are some people who are making money and some people who are losing money, right? And so there will always be people who can be professional poker players. But I, I do agree with you that what happened in poker was seizing upon a moment in time, right? When there was a relatively large amount of arbitrage in an inefficient market that became more efficient, right? So crypto, I think more obvious ball. Like definitely what happened in 2017, 2018 was classic bubble behavior where the, the, the behavior in the market, what people are doing with respect to the assets, the degree to which they're valuing the assets, become totally unmoored from their meaningful, actual, real-world valuation, right? It basically becomes a game of musical chairs where I'm fairly certain if I invest in this ICO, there will be like 100 more people who are going to come after me, and as long as the music's playing, I can still dance and I can still make money, right? This, I mean, this is, you know, isomorphic to what happened in the dot-com bubble, to what happened in Tulip Mania, what happened in basically every bubble you can look at in history has the same rough shape. It's interesting that a lot of people actually in crypto, a lot of people who are in poker actually end up finding themselves in the crypto bubble. And I found that very curious when I first started getting into crypto of seeing a lot of the old faces that I once knew, you know, many years ago in poker. I was like, why is that? And I think part of it is that one thing that animates poker players is the instinct to find and take advantage of small edges, especially if those small edges are, you know, at the periphery of what's socially acceptable or if they're slightly subversive. Poker players, I think, are kind of, they, they have a constitution that they're not afraid of going out and making money in ways that other people might find weird or unconventional or even, you know, un, unrespectable, right? So I think that's a part of it, of what happened there. And a part of the reason why I think, like many of these other poker players, I was drawn to crypto is not just because I see, which I do, the, the potential for technological disruption and the really interesting properties of crypto. I think there's also some element of, you know, I like the fact that this is kind of dangerous. You know, I like the fact that it's kind of weird and has the potential to really break things. And I don't know, like, I'm, I, I think I thrive on that kind of environment where things that are sort of a little bit too conventional, a little bit too well understood, just don't excite me as much. When I talk to web developers about building and deploying websites, I keep hearing excitement about Netlify. Netlify is a modern way to build and manage fast, modern websites that run without the need for addressable web servers. Netlify is serverless. Netlify lets you deploy sites directly from Git to a worldwide application delivery network for the fastest possible performance. Netlify's built-in continuous deployment automatically builds and deploys your site or your application whenever you push to your Git repository. You can even attach deploy previews to your pull requests and turn each branch into its own staging site. Use modern front-end tools and site generators like React and Gatsby or Vue and Nuxt 
For the backend, Netlify can automatically deploy AWS Lambda functions right alongside the rest of your code. Simply set up a folder and drop in your functions. Everything else is automatic. And there's so much more. There's automatic forms, identity management, and tools to manage and transform large images and media. Go to netlify.com slash sedaily to learn more about Netlify and support software engineering daily. It's a great way to deploy your newest application or an old application. So go to netlify.com slash sedaily and see what the Netlify team is building. Also, you can check out our episode that we did with the Netlify CEO and founder, Matt Billman. That was a really enjoyable episode. And I'm happy to have Netlify as a supporter of Software Engineering Daily. One thing you saw uh, among engineers in in that bubble period, the crypto bubble period about a, a little more than a year ago, was you wouldn't see just people who were captured by the crypto bubble. You also saw the inverse where people would say, crypto cryptocurrency is nothing. This is garbage. Don't pay any attention to this crap. It's all a scam. And, you know, I mean, I certainly, I did some podcast interviews with people who were very sophisticated scam artists. That's ultimately what it boiled down to what they were doing. That, that facet did exist, but there is material technology there. What accounts for the psychological effect where some of us, some people in the engineering community just rejected this technology entirely? So I, so let me first preface my answer with saying that, actually, let me, let, it'd be interesting. I, I kind of want to get a read of the audience. How many people think that crypto is kind of a Okay, how many people think blockchain is kind of bullshit? Like not crypto necessarily, but blockchain in general as like a thing. Okay, how many people are like, crypto is so real, like I'm on board. Okay, so <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of, very low voter turnout, which is actually pretty normal for crypto. <laughs> so I'm very empathetic to the, the perspective of engineers who look at crypto and are like, this is, this is just bullshit, this, this doesn't do anything. Like, I, you know, the reality is like, especially being an investor now, right? The reality is the majority of the pitches that I see fall into the category of complete bullshit. Right. They basically like they're 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 taking this kind of nebulous concept of blockchain or decentralized networks. And they're appending it to something that like kind of somewhat makes sense or somewhat connects to the real world. And out of it, they get something that really just doesn't. You know, if you sort of close your eyes and squint, like okay, maybe there's a business there. But for the most part, it's like no, this doesn't solve anything. Right. This is really the thing about I think any technological innovation is that as soon as you get a new primitive, right, nobody really knows how it's going to get used. Nobody really knows what the eventual thing ten years later. That we look back on it like, oh, of course, the internet was used for, you know, anybody to be able to create videos and upload them, right? Duh, that's what the internet was going to be used for, right? We had no idea that that was going to be true. We thought it was going to be Usenet. We thought it was going to be, you know, pets.com, right? And so I think it's, it's normal in, for, to some degree to look at most of the things that are coming out and say, this is almost certainly not going to happen, right? The world is almost certainly not going to change that way. And you are almost always going to be right when you make that claim about some potential use of an innovation. I think the, the mistake to make is to assume that the entire category is not going to exist, as opposed to the specific applications that people are suggesting are probably not going to work. You're always going to be right in predicting that specific applications are not going to work, but your batting average in assuming that an entire category of innovation is not going to produce anything valuable, at this point I feel like is pretty, is pretty rough. So I'd say for crypto, most things that people say about crypto will turn out to be false, will turn out not to happen. 
And I think a lot of the people who feel like, well, blockchain is will feel very vindicated. And they're like, yeah, I told you that wasn't gonna happen. But there will be a very small number of things that I believe will be very successful. And for those things, the properties of blockchain will actually matter. Um, and for some of them, maybe blockchain won't, maybe blockchain will be totally incidental to why they work. So I think it kind of depends on how you're making that assessment of blockchain being bull versus you know, the category. And a lot of people, like if you press them deeply enough, right, they'll say like, well, you know, blockchain technically, like, yes, if you use it the right way, use it for the right purposes and you really need decentralization, yes, I see why it's valuable, but that's not, that doesn't apply to 99% of the stuff out there, which I agree with. In, in that bubble period, I fell victim to some of the, the hype in, in the sense that, that what you described is that poker player desire to go after those small edges. I saw how fast the market was going up. I, I had friends who were buying rye blocks. I don't know what rye blocks <laughs> is, but they bought it and then they made like 80 grand very quickly. And this is not a rare story. All this, all this kind of stuff happened just like it did in the tech bubble. And this actually happens to us all the time as engineers to, to a slightly lesser extent or maybe to, to a much more opaque extent. But we see technologies on Hacker News and, and it's like Flutter. Flutter's the thing, right? Or like GraphQL, right? Like GraphQL is the thing. GraphQL kind of is the thing. Or chatbots. Chatbots, you know, there was kind of a chatbot bubble. Yeah. And so, you know, as technologists, actually, whether or not we're making investments, like financially, we're making investments in terms of how we allocate our time to, to actually assessing and, and developing expertise in technologies. How can we develop a sensibility that allows us to evaluate technologies and, uh, and make personal investments in terms of time or money? Hmm. That's a really tricky question. You know, I think that, that's sort of like the crux of what it is to be a good venture capitalist, is essentially to be able to make long-term predictions about how technology is going to evolve and how it's going to end up being used in society to create powerful businesses. As an engineer, I mean, it's very much true, right? Like if you were somebody who you decided to go out, even though it was kind of unsexy at the time, to stake your career 10 years ago on learning about neural nets, right? Um, that, you know, 10 years ago, I mean, I guess 10 years ago is still already on the up and up, but let's say 15 years ago, right? That was like a very niche area of artificial intelligence research. But if you had, if you had made that investment, if you had just seen around that corner, and known that, that AI and neural networks would become really important, you would become now, you know, head of AI at Google or you know, whatever, right? Like you'd be you'd be really, really big. You'd win the Turing Award. Right, you win the Turing Award, whatever. Literally. Right? And so I think this is this is generally true that if you make a high-risk bet with your career, you end up getting this sort of high-risk, high-reward situation where if this technology becomes really important, great, you are now a world expert in this technology because you've dedicated yourself to it. On the other hand, if the technology fails or becomes like chatbots, right, then Maybe it's like, okay, now I'm like, I'm, I'm king of an island that no one cares about, right? And that kind of sucks. So, you know, if you're like, you know, I don't know, a world expert on XMPP, you know, it's like, well, all right, great. That's totally unemployable now. Congratulations. So I, I think, you know, to, to some degree, like that's kind of what I did myself with crypto was, you know, I, I kind of decided that, look, this field is really, really interesting. I think it's the place where like there's the small hidden edge that, uh, you know, a, a smart, motivated person can find. And... I'm going to devote myself to it, learn as much as I can about it, and try to become an expert. And, you know, it, there was a massive crypto crash. And so maybe it kind of looks like, man, damn, did I make the wrong career choice? But I think, you know, for myself at least, the way that I see it is, maybe a better way of answering this question would be like, what would I do personally if crypto was just like totally dead now? 
You know, like, crypto's not dead. People still write about crypto. You're also here because you guys know what's going on in crypto. But let's imagine crypto just totally flattened, right? No one's talking about crypto anymore. All the crypto companies go under. You know, it's not cool. You know, medium posts don't get collapsed anymore when they talk about crypto. Like, it's all dead, right? Uh, I would probably have to be like, okay, I made a bet. It didn't pay off. Uh, what do I want to go do now, right? Uh, there's some point at which I say, look, I rolled the dice. It didn't pay off. I, I go back to the, you know, I go back to, the, to ideation. But I think, generally speaking, the shape of the most successful careers, at least in, in my mind, or at least the ones that I think are available to me, are ones that tend to look like a series of high-risk bets, one of which pays off, right? And that's kind of the way that poker, I think, looks a lot of the time, is that, um, I mean, in poker, a lot of the time, like, you're trying to minimize the volatility of any particular bet you're making. But in aggregate, you want to actually be pushing the threshold of taking the most optimal amount of risk at any given time. And the most optimal amount of risk, there's a mathematical formulation for it called the Kelly criteria, which usually is riskier than you think you should be playing. And I think this is generally true with people's careers. People tend to de-risk their careers a lot. I think, especially in Silicon Valley, which is like the least risky place to be an engineer in the world. You know, like the likelihood that you as an engineer will go hungry after, you know, betting on chatbots or whatever, uh, is just it's tremendously low, right? Like you can always go get a job just doing whatever it is you were doing before you started getting all into chatbots. So when the cost of failure is so low, you should just be making bets all the time. And you should be making bets as aggressively as you can. And uh, that's, I, to my mind, I think that's what I've tried to do in my career. And I'd, I'd say, I don't know how you guess which one wins. You know, I don't think I can impute that into somebody's brain just magically by telling them some perspective. But I think like if you, if you have a lot of confidence that something will change the world, don't make a bet on it. A few other Hasib factoids relevant to this. You studied philosophy. Yes. And you actually wrote a book called How to Be a Poker Player, which is a philosophy of poker. And it's, it's a fantastic book. It really is the convergence of poker and philosophy. So if you are at least a little bit interested in one of those categories, I recommend checking it out. But what's interesting about it is how it, it applies. It does apply more broadly. And what I, what I wonder is you've had this trajectory of going to a boot camp and then very quickly finding great success. And that's been something that other people have, have found to be like a, a role model kind of thing. Like I, I know a lot of people read your story online. They're like, that's cool. That guy kind of transitioned from somewhere else. He reinvented himself. And it seems to be able to navigate the software engineering world quite well. Um, I think a lot of people in, that are listening probably are in the early in their careers or they may even be at a boot camp or maybe thinking about how to, how to join a boot camp. So if you were to kind of write the book on how to be a software engineer. And there's people who are entering the, the, the world right now, they're just consuming all the information about software engineering that they can find. How would you condense that book? That's tough. So I, I do have a couple blog posts that I've written about different parts of that journey, or at least like in a kind of pattern matching on my own experiences. And there's one that I wrote about how to get into a coding bootcamp, and then another one I wrote on kind of how to get a job, like you sort of get your first job offer in the tech industry. Uh, but if I were to try to condense all that material down to a few sentences, uh, probably what I'd say is, so uh, probably the very first thing is figure out, like, do you actually want to do this? Because I think it's, it's very easy and tempting to make commitments before actually knowing what you're getting into. I think as much as there's become this kind of weird 
there's become this kind of weird mantra in Silicon Valley around anybody can code and whatever. Like the reality is like, yes, anybody can code, but not everybody should code. And a lot of people are going to have a very horrible time if they convince themselves that they need to be software engineers, when in reality, it's just something for which like either is not pleasant for them, it doesn't click with their brains naturally, or it's just not the kind of thinking that they're especially good at. And so if you're somebody who like, you're very, very good with your written word and you're very, very bad at like, thinking the way the computer thinks in a very analytical, rigorous way, don't try to force it because you'll just end up really, really making yourself unhappy and probably wasting a lot of time and money. So the first thing I'd say is like, figure out whether it's for you and really seriously ask yourself that question. And it's not to say that like, if it doesn't come naturally to you, you shouldn't do it. But it is to say that if it's not something you think would actually make you happy, definitely don't do it because it's hard. I've seen many people go through the transition from you know, going from zero to software engineer and for every single one of them, it's really hard. It doesn't matter what their background is, doesn't matter how much education they have, it's hard for every single person I've ever seen. And so if you don't actually enjoy what you're doing, I just don't see how you can make it because it's just extremely intense. So that's the first thing is like figure out whether it's for you. If you know it's for you, then work your ass off, study really hard, don't try to learn everything because you're not gonna be able to. Be comfortable with up and Basically, I guess the, the last piece of advice that I think sort of kind of goes undersaid is network matters more than you think, you think it does. And that doesn't mean that like you need to have a pre-existing network because I definitely didn't have a pre-existing network, but it means that you should be cultivating that network the moment that you can. And every opportunity you get to build connections with people and relationships with people, especially if they're in industry in some way, you should, because it will come back to pay itself over in spades. And this is true even in engineering, which is one of the most kind of technical object level fields you can think of. I mean, I remember when I first started as a, as a getting into programming, thinking like, well, for MBAs, I'm sure networking matters, but like, I, you know, I know how to code. And like, that's the, that's the real thing that, that makes a difference in engineering. And that's just not true. Like, and it's, it's only like with the passage of time, the more and more I appreciate how deeply untrue that is. I wanna have a couple crypto-oriented questions. And it seems like maybe half the audience is, is less familiar with crypto. I'd like to get uh, deep into it. So in the crypto world, if, you, if, you're, if you're not following it closely, there's these two giant communities, which is the Bitcoin community and, and the Ethereum community. So these two communities are, are kind of, to some degree, like the Apple and Microsoft divergence, uh, you know, kind of that you hear about back in the day, or maybe uh, I don't know, Google versus Facebook today, or it's kind of a rivalry, uh, a difference in philosophical opinion. How would you contrast and describe the Bitcoin community versus the Ethereum community? So when, when people say the Bitcoin community, usually they're referring to a relatively small cloister in the center who are often called the Bitcoin maximalists. And these people tend to be very, very ideological. They tend to be very old school. So, you know, they've been you know, on the Bitcoin train for like a decade or, you know, eight, seven, six years. And they tend to be very, for the most part, dismissive uh, of other blockchains or other innovations in blockchain aside from Bitcoin. However, I think to call that the Bitcoin community, I think is kind of not just not correct, right? There's sort of like this, this very loud uh, and very important group of people at the center of the Bitcoin community. But Bitcoin is so big and it's so global that like, obviously the vast majority of people who are in Bitcoin are also people who are taking part in other communities, or there's people who are not that ideological about Bitcoin being the end all be all of cryptocurrencies. But when you talk about the Bitcoin community, the norms are at least to some large degree set by the folks who are at the very center of that community. So they, they tend to be very, very exclusive to Bitcoin. 
The Ethereum community, on the other hand, tends to be more collaborative. They tend to be more in the spirit of, hey, this is all a big experiment. Like, we, we, this, is, this is sort of, you know, we're, we're trying this shit out. We don't know if it's going to work. We have to keep iterating on it. Like, it's a, it's a very hard science problem to figure out how to get these blockchains to scale to the level we need them to, to be actually usable for realistic, you know, world-scale commerce or finance. And so they tend to be more technologists, more kind of open in terms of the, the orientation of the community to new ideas. So in a sense, these are kind of caricatures because like, again, these communities are really fucking big and there's so many people who are both in both communities or at the margins of each community that it's kind of like saying like, what's France like? And I'm like, well, French are all like this. It's like, well, France is a big place, you know? And so I'd say like Bitcoin and Ethereum are also, they're big places, you know? So I think it's, it's a little easy to kind of paint them with this big brush, but if, if I had to give you the canonical answer, that would kind of be it. Since this is Software Engineering Daily, and we're talking about Ethereum and Bitcoin, we've done some shows about this, but I, I really want your opinion. We're, we're talking about the Ethereum and Bitcoin communities philosophically. When it comes to actual engineering problems, what are the main engineering problems of the respective communities right now? So for Bitcoin, I, that's a little bit tougher because I'd say there, there are definitely a lot of folks in the Bitcoin community who, who see Bitcoin's primary feature or property that to, to maintain is being its immutability. Essentially being that Bitcoin is basically good enough and it doesn't really need to change. So a lot of people would say, look, let's just maintain the chain as it's going forward. But like for the most part, it's done. It's fine. Like the most important developments to happen are on, on layer two. So layer two are sort of like these, these kind of, I guess like sort of emergent networks that you build on top of the main chains. Um, so Lightning Network, for example, is one of these layer two networks for, for Bitcoin. So I think a lot of people who are sort of very kind of in that Bitcoin maximalist sphere would often say, look, you know, there are a few things at the margin, like Schnorr signatures or whatever, that might bring some advantages to Bitcoin. But for the most part, like it's good. It's done. Satoshi figured it out. We have it. Now, for Ethereum, that's a much, much larger question. So Ethereum has tons of problems, and there's a lot of different avenues that they need to solve in order to fix them. So the first and foremost thing for Ethereum is that Ethereum actually wants to scale their layer one. Uh, and so they're trying to move toward a new design of what they're calling Ethereum 2.0. And in Ethereum 2.0, they're going to be using proof of stake instead of proof of work. It's going to be sharded instead of being a single you know, monolithic blockchain. There are going to be many different blockchains that talk to each other through an asynchronous uh, messaging protocol and all sorts of other stuff like things like state rent and a different virtual machine and blah, 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 blah. It's like Ethereum is just totally like going to reinvent itself over the next few years. So, I mean, I could go into more detail on it, what any of those specific things are, but for the most part, like that kind of gives you a glimpse of how different the kind of psychologies are between the two communities. As uh, normal people, not, not thinking as engineers, uh, we would like to have some of the benefits of cryptocurrencies. We just may not know it. We may not know today how these things are going to to affect our lives. But what are some innovations that that you see most likely to impact the regular human user? Like, if I want to tell my mom why to be excited, or my dad for that matter, why to be excited about cryptocurrency, what do you actually tell them? <laughs> so my answer here is that uh, my answer here is probably nothing. So I, I, I think it's unlikely that cryptocurrencies are going to be used by everybody in the world, or at least used by everybody to the same degree or to the same material impact in their lives. I think for the most part, like if you're the kind of person who showed up to this room, you're the kind of person like who lives in the first world with a college degree and like a good amount of money and a well-paying job and a, 
in an economy that has a relatively, basically like one of the most superb financial systems in the world, um, you're fine. You have everything you need. You have Venmo, you can get loans, you can you know, uh, get, go margin long on whatever asset you want, you can buy the S&P, you, you can basically get exposure to any financial asset in the world, right, as an American citizen. Um, but this is not true pretty rapidly once you go outside the purview of you know, wealthy cities in the US. Um, and so I think where you're going to see, like, I, I mean, in large part, my answer is that, like, your mom is probably not going to use crypto. Or if, they, if she does, it's going to be, like, sort of as the back end to another service that's totally abstracted from her, and she never even notices that anything's changed, right? But this, to the extent that, like, for example, J.P. Morgan might start settling their, their uh, uh, you know, cross-exchange settlement, or not cross-exchange settlement, uh, cross-account settlement through a blockchain, right? But if you are, for example, a migrant worker in Thailand, or you are, for example, you know, a, a wealthy individual in China who wants to get exposure to financial assets outside of the Chinese stock exchange, then there will be no other game in town but crypto. And crypto is going to be a, a very powerful mechanism for a lot of different coordination problems to get solved, but also a lot of ways for individuals who want exposure to financial assets outside of what's prescribed within their particular jurisdiction to get exposed to a, a global financial system for the first time. Right? We kind of make noises as though our financial system is global, but it's not really global. Right? It's global insofar as the U.S. government has reach everywhere in the world. But it's not global in that anybody in the world has access to all the infrastructure that everybody else has access to. That's very untrue. There's massively unequal access to financial infrastructure around the world. And there are some places where, for example, you know, uh, uh, one example I like to come up with is that in, um, in Thailand, you know, there are a lot of migrant workers in Thailand. And in order to get a bank account in Thailand, you need the equivalent of about 500 US dollars, right? Which to a migrant worker is worth about half a year's salary, right? How many people in the US do you think have half a year's salary in savings? It's a tiny amount, right? Uh, and that's basically what the, like, if you are in that situation in Thailand, you can only exist in the cash economy. And that example, why does, why does crypto solve something? Why does, it, why does crypto solve that, that problem of not being able to open a bank account? So the, the answer is that basically what crypto does is it allows you access to this uncensorable, decentralized system that where, where people can build one set of financial services that service the entire world, right? That was really not possible even with just the internet on its own because the internet was always under the control of the particular party that was running the server, right? And that party ultimately was under the jurisdiction of the United States, which has its own incentives, its own laws, its own restrictions on the transfer of money and value and whatever. Um, cryptocurrencies have become this way for people to decide on uh, or people to agree on a value accruing system that nobody owns and is accessible everywhere in the world. That's actually new. That has actually never happened before, except insofar as we all agree that like gold is valuable. But gold is not digital, right? Uh, there are you know, digital markets on which you can buy and sell gold, but they're not available everywhere in the world. And if you don't have access to the gold, you're shed a lot, right? Uh, crypto is really the first place where that has happened. So I would guess that the people who will be most disrupted by what happens in crypto are not gonna be us. And I think as, this is kind of one of the many biases of Silicon Valley is that it has a very hard time wrapping its head around things that don't apply to basically, you know, upper middle class folks in California. But this is exactly the place where crypto is probably not gonna matter. And other places in the world who are not here, they get crypto almost immediately when they see what's, what, what it's capable of. Now, as a Silicon Valley denizen, you know, the thing that really is just destroying my life is that really good ads are getting served to me. 
And these really good ads are only possible by the, what is sometimes called, what is it, surveillance capitalism. Uh, and, and, and this is, you know, the, the term that people use when they're, they're criticizing Facebook and Google and Amazon, these companies that are collectively passing, uh, are, are collecting your data. Um, your, the, da- the data that's passively accumulating, the data that you're explicitly, explicitly giving to these companies. And there are some theories that, you know, not only will, will crypto enable this, this financial system, but it will potentially undermine or, or even further is needed to undermine these, these services that have become so interwoven with our lives. To what extent do you do you buy into that uh, kind of decentralization, you know, decentralized to undermine Google belief set? Almost not at all. So I, I think this is this is again like one of the things I think uh, happens a lot in crypto is like kind of sort of like electrical interference, where crypto is like this big weird noisy thing, and like. All the anger at Facebook and Google is this big, weird, noisy thing, so they must connect somehow. And like, I think, I think the the reality is that they like, also connect to GraphQL, and they also connect to GraphQL, like everything else that people are angry about, or like you know, I don't know, surveillance capitalism and Russia and what, you know, blah blah blah, right? <laughs> they all somehow connect in some very important way. Um, I, I think for the most part, like it was it was positive. There was kind of this story, you know, I think it's still alive in crypto, but it's a little bit less strong than it was last year around what they call Web three. Right? So the idea is like, okay, web one is like, you know, Usenet and email and whatever, right? Web two is this big interactive thing where like, you know, Facebook like button and isn't that amazing and you can share it with your friends. Um, and then the idea is like, okay, web three is the decentralized web. That's the web where literally nobody owns it. It's not run by any particular server, right? Like it's all global infrastructure, everything's transparent and there's no more, you know, capture by particular companies of your data. The data is now open and self-sovereign, blah, 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 right? Like that's the web three story. Um, and so I am, amazingly skeptical of this story for, for a few important reasons. So one is that I think, like, the reality is, why do people use Facebook and Google and blah, 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 right? The answer is that because, you know, two answers to that question. One answer is that people don't realize what they're giving away with all their data when they consume these services for free. Uh, and the second answer to that question is that people don't give a shit about their data. The people who give a shit about giving away their data are New York Times columnists and people who are on soapboxes. But for the most part, like, they all use Gmail, they all use Google, they all, you know, like, yes, they all use these services because they're all willing individually to make the trade-off, right? Now, you might say, look, aren't we in this globally suboptimal equilibrium? Wouldn't it be better if we all picked up, like, we all signed a contract together and, like, became, you know, blood brothers and sisters, and we just were like, look, we're all tomorrow going to shut off Google and go to DuckDuckGo or whatever, right? Like, let's all do that. Let's all just agree that that's going to happen tomorrow, right? Yes. In that hypothetical world, maybe everybody else is happy and Google's sad in that world. But that is not going to happen, right? The only way that, that, that there's like a picking up and moving of an equilibrium like that uh, is if the incentives radically change, right? This is like classic prisoner's dilemma game theory stuff, right? Like, no, the, it, blockchain doesn't change that, right? What the f*** is a blockchain going to do about the fact that Google is a way better search engine than any other search engine in the world? What does blockchain have anything to do with Crowdsourcing. Right? Like, <laughs> look, DuckDuckGo is trying their best. Bing is trying their best. They're not even, you know, they collect data on you and they still suck, right? So, like, the reality is these services are really, really good, but you pay for them with your data. People are not happy about that. Uh, blockchain is kind of orthogonal, right? To my mind, there are some things that get solved through decentralization. Social networks are not one of them. Search engines are not one of them. 
like if you want to see something that gets particularly disrupted by crypto, it's probably something for which, man, the only reason why this is not working is because we didn't have a coordination mechanism, but now we do, right? Uh, I don't think the problem with Facebook or Google is that people don't have coordination mechanisms. I think the problem is that they are really, really good products and it's harder to build better ones. And to be clear, they do have great uh, network effects, uh, but that's part of the value proposition of the product. So unless you can build a product that has a better value proposition, it doesn't matter whether it's decentralized or you own your own data or whatever. You know, if there's anything, if there's anything we've learned over the last couple of years of you know, the New York Times and other mainstream media just beating up on these social networks is that consumers don't care. They vote with their wallets and they still stay on Facebook. Like Facebook stock was actually up after New York Times like did all their, you know, nonstop exposés on them. And they only went down when they said, look, we're not, we're, we're going to stop serving as many ads because like people aren't using Facebook as much uh, because people are going to Instagram, which is by the way, in the same ad network. So that's my very long-winded kind of angry answer. Testing a mobile app is not easy. I know this from experience, working on the SE Daily mobile application. We have an iOS client and an Android client, and we get bug reports all the time from users that are on operating systems that we did not test. People have old iPhones. There are a thousand different versions of Android. With such a fragmented ecosystem, it's easy for a bug to occur in a system that you didn't test. BitBar is a platform for mobile app testing. If you've struggled to get to continuous delivery in your mobile application, check out bitbar.com slash sedaily and get a free month of mobile app testing. BitBar tests your app on real devices, no emulators, no virtual environments. BitBar has real Android and iOS devices, and the BitBar testing tools integrate with Jenkins, Travis CI, and other continuous integration tools. Check out bitbar.com slash sedaily and get a free month of unlimited mobile app testing. BitBar also has an automated test bot, which is great for exploratory testing without writing a single line of code. You have a mobile app that your customers depend on, and you need to test the target devices before your application updates roll out. Go to bitbar.com slash sedaily and find out more about BitBar. You get a free month of mobile application testing on real devices, and that's pretty useful. So you can get that deal by going to bitbar.com slash sedaily, get real testing on real devices, get help from the automated test bot so that you have some exploratory testing without writing any code, and thanks to BitBar. You can check out bitbar.com slash sedaily to get that free month and to support Software Engineering Daily. There's a growing sentiment among engineers, again, at least engineers that are talking to certain newspapers, that, you know, we're engineers... And we're fed up making addictive technology for these companies. And we're fed up making facial recognition technology. It's time that we developed a true ethos for engineering. And it's time that we boycotted these companies and and stopped delivering dopamine hits to people at at uneven slot machine-like frequencies. 
as somebody who who played poker from a very young age, I will say there's a certain advantage to having to overcome the urge to go and play the slot machine all the time. And I, I would say I, I definitely benefited from the fact that I, I really dealt with some severe, not exactly addiction issues, but sort of like you, you feel the threat of addiction. As a poker player, you absolutely feel the threat of addiction, if not deal with it on a firsthand basis. And by the way, we, we sort of coped with this. We were sort of the early, I don't know, early adopters of, of technology addiction, dopamine rushes, uh, the same kind of stuff that's, you know, that you see addicting people to World of Warcraft and, and just to your smartphone. So you know you can you can take that as a as a bundle of uh, a bundle of things. Yeah, let me let me kind of go through some of those things. In okay, yeah. Because yeah. I so I I don't want to portray myself as saying that I don't think you should boycott Google or Facebook. If you want to Google boycott Google and Facebook, I encourage that. I think that's awesome. Go do it. Right. Vote with your wallet. Vote with your attention. Vote with your usage of these products. Right. Uh, I think voting with like social media signaling, which is I think what a lot of people are doing, like they're literally on Facebook saying how bad Facebook is or on Twitter saying how bad social media is. So like I, you know, to, to be clear, like I very much intentionally limit my use of social media. So I have a, like I have a, a, like an extension that literally blocks my Facebook feed. So I have no Facebook feed. I never go to my algorithmic feed on Twitter. Like I basically try to avoid, I, I don't have anything signal on my phone and I try to avoid any algorithmic feeds in my life generally. Cause I think they're just, basically bad for your brain and your attention span. The, kind of riff a little bit on what you were saying about poker. So I'm actually somewhat the opposite, where like I never, like I was not addicted to gambling. And I know a lot of people who are professional poker players who are also, it was sort of like a way for them to manage this beast of their gambling addiction, <laughs> but in a relatively productive way. And that was not the case for me. Like I, you know, I, I just have no attraction whatsoever to the slot machines. Like they sound stupid and, and kind of just moronic to me to spend your time just losing expected value by pulling on a thing. Right. So, I mean, it's not to say like I never gambled. I certainly did, but it wasn't it wasn't a thing that I was drawn to. But I do think I'm some you know, like for people who say, look, this stuff is addictive and this stuff is bad for you. I totally agree. And to that, to some extent, like I am also voting in my wallet on that. And I think in the future we will look back on the attitude we had towards social media and toward a lot of these applications generally as being like as bad or as as stupid as the obesity epidemic. Right. We were sort of like, look, yeah, it's totally fine. The free market can just invent more and more kinds of candy and, and soft drinks and normalize drinking Coke at every single meal. And like, what's wrong with that? What could happen? And then it turns out society just starts getting more and more fucked as people just get more and more obese and nobody can really figure out what's going wrong. I think eventually we're going to see the same thing happen with these applications on our smartphones uh, just because we've never had any relationship with an object quite as intense as the relationships that people have with their phones. Um, and I think that's true for, for me as well, even though I, I try to be conscious about it. I know that like I'm addicted to my phone and I'm pretty sure everybody in here has some degree of not physical but psychological addiction to your, to your phone, if you, especially if you're in Silicon Valley. So I think it's important to be mindful of these things. It's important to like kind of engineer your own life such that you make the best of the situation that you're in. I don't think the answer is being a total Luddite. I don't think the answer is just embracing everything mindlessly. It, you know, to my mind, it's like, yes, these things are addicting. You have to probably engage with it. Like, you know, I should be on Twitter because I think that's where important conversations are happening, especially in the crypto and investing world. But I try to moderate my usage of it. So it's kind of like, look, you know, being addicted to food is bad. You should still eat food though, you know, but don't like buy 10 tubs of ice cream and just like be like, look, I'm never gonna look at them. So it's fine, right? Be smart about it, right? Engineer your life around making yourself make good choices. 
So, mm. you know, people who haven't followed your career, you, so after you graduated a boot camp, you, you worked at the boot camp for a while, then you joined Airbnb, you worked as an engineer there for about a year and a half or something like that. And then you became kind of a, a cryptocurrency expert. You were thinking about what to do as a cryptocurrency expert, and you, you wound up in, in crypto, crypto VC, basically, crypto investment. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I think you developed kind of a knowledge of how the VC world works more broadly. In what ways does venture capital resemble poker? The ways in which it resembles poker is that one, it's an area where you need to be mind, you need, you need to be thoughtful about risks. So you need to be willing to take intelligent risks. You need to be good at kind of emotionally separating yourself from your decision making. So, you know, not feeling excessively bad when something you do goes wrong or not feeling like insanely good when something you do goes right, but like moderating those peaks and troughs that I think you know, naturally people tend to feel. I would honestly say for the most part, uh, there aren't that many similarities between venture capital and poker. You know, a lot of people have kind of posed the question to me like, oh, poker must have made you really, really good at investing. And it's like, not really. Like most poker players I know are terrible investors. And I think a large part of the, like, I think poker players tend to make good traders because trading is very much about short-term decision-making and very enclosed analytical little problems that you have to decide, look, do I get, when do I get in, when do I get out? You get very quick feedback cycles and it's, it's, it's extremely mathematical and analytical. Whereas investing, especially investing in companies, tends to have a much longer time horizon. You get feedback very, very slowly. It's, there's much more non-quantitative inputs into your decision making. Uh, and it's much more about integrating lots of little pieces of information as opposed to rigorously analyzing a kind of fixed set of data, right? So I think those skills don't overlap with poker very much, I would say. I think it's, it's, in a way it's like philosophy kind of handles that better where philosophy kind of trains you to like think very holistically and bring in a lot of different inputs and think very clearly about problems under a lot of uncertainty. Um, so I kind of think like being philosophically minded actually probably selects better for people who are good investors. I could be totally wrong about that, but that's like my, my gut feeling. Crypto investing specifically, uh, if I want to be a crypto investor, I, let, me, let me put this another way. I'll put it in the uh, the, the Peter Thiel question asking phrasing, what do you believe about crypto investing that is true that all other crypto investors or most other crypto investors disbelieve? Uh, that's a very good question. I guess the, the answers I can think of are pretty niche. Do you want me to give a niche answer or do you want me to give like a broad answer? So I can think about like specific things that I think won't happen that other people most people think will. Maybe we should, we should broaden this. Yeah. How do you invest intelligently as a quote-unquote crypto investor? <laughs> How do you invest intelligently? So I guess the first thing I would say is that, in tr true in any kind of investing, is that if you are any kind of halfway decent investor, you'll say a lot more no's than you'll say yeses. If you're not finding you're doing that, you're doing something very wrong, right? So the first thing is that like 90 plus percent of things are not good investments. The second thing I would say is that like you, you, you have to... I think a lot of people, especially in a field like crypto, which is so weird and like kind of has so many moving parts to it and is changing so rapidly, they kind of let their common sense go out the window sometimes. 
right? And they kind of sort of assume they're like, well, but this is a new world and crypto and Web three and you know the decentralized future and who knows what's possible. And so maybe they're you know maybe maybe we will all be you know buying coffee through our you know through whatever, right? Like through Bitcoin on Lightning Network and blah blah blah. And I think just stopping to try to really rigorously ask yourself skeptical questions about okay, what what would go wrong for this thing not to come true, right? Or what would have to go right for this thing to come true? I think really kind of connecting that causal chain of how the world changes, as opposed to like, first there's A, then there's B. And like, yeah, I, I, B kind of makes sense. I can see the story in my head. So I'm gonna go ahead and invest. I feel like that's how a lot of people in crypto tend to invest. I'm just kind of like, yeah, that sounds roughly plausible as like a possible future. Mm. Without really thinking about, okay, first A has to happen, then B has to happen, then C has to happen, then D has to not happen. And that's how- So it's not like, I'm betting on the founder. Right, yeah, like I think that's just like the wrong way to think about, because in crypto investing, is ultimately investing in early stage experimental technology, right? It's not like investing in just like random startups, right? Uh, and, and to that end, I think the product, the technology, the specific problem you're trying to solve really actually matters, right? So I think if you're, if you're making bets in crypto purely based on this is a smart founder, you're gonna make a lot of really terrible bets because there are a lot of really smart people in crypto who have no idea what they're doing. So that's kind of a function in large part of what happened last year is that the, and you can kind of see it's just, you know, supply and demand, right? The value to an entrepreneur of coming into crypto and building something and being able to raise a lot of money and get really quick liquidity brought a lot of really smart people into crypto. And naturally that just means that like a lot of those people are going to be very, very capable entrepreneurs, but have no idea how to build good crypto products or not have any real insight into what the world needs through, a, you know, some kind of crypto network. So that would make me say that, you know, be really skeptical if you want to be a good investor. One last question, then we'll kind of open it up for, for audience questions. I'm really looking forward to hearing from the audience. You've reinvented yourself a number of times. So, you know, you've gone from, so first you, you went into uh, poker after, you know, I think you were, you were very interested in physics. And then from poker, you went into software engineering, software engineering into, into crypto. Do you have uh, like a recipe for, for self-reinvention or, or put another way, do you think people are are too hesitant to sort of reinvent themselves to, to sort because of, i think people get stuck in a rut like I, I i i feel like people get stuck in a rut and, and for example like i'm uh you know i look i'm i'm just i'm a cobalt developer i've been a cobalt developer for 20 years i'm only looking for cobalt contracts and that's all i'll ever be i want cobalt written on my grave there are some people that that's totally fine but i think people don't i think people may overestimate how difficult it is to 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 reinvent yourself, and sometimes it's perhaps not as hard as it looks. What are your lessons about reinvention that you think the average software engineer should know? That's a funny question because I don't think I've ever had a moment in my life where I was like, I should reinvent myself. <laughs> like, I, like I, I don't think it's ever been like, huh, this is not working out. I should become a new person. It's more just like you know, you you, you just sort of keep kind of step-by-step step going through life and making good locally optimal decisions, and you end up finding yourself having taken a really weird path to get to where you are, kind of like, I feel like what I would say to somebody who's thinking about reinventing themselves or is afraid of reinventing themselves. Wait, but hold on, like, hold on, hold on. Going from poker to software engineering is not like an obvious local Optima decision. That's true, that's, like, that's true. That's like a- Yes, because that's, that's like the, the two, like it's like the one sentence compression function over what I actually did. Exactly. Like what actually so tell me like, what goes on in that, it, uncompress that, please. I, I uncompress that. Uh, so, I mean, long story short, 
basically I was like, okay, I was a poker player. I'm done with that now. I want to do something else. It wasn't like I want to reinvent myself. I was just like, I, I want to do something else. And so I was looking at various things that I thought I could do. And one of the things that I, well, I guess, actually, now that I think about it, here's maybe the one example of a time that I thought, okay, I'm going to reinvent myself. So at one point I decided after poker, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in my career. And I, I, I'd run into this movement called effective altruism, which advocates going to a higher earning career and donating a lot of your income to charity. So I thought, okay, I should go into, go, I, I was convinced by this. And I thought, okay, I should go pursue a higher earning career and donate my money to charity. And I thought the best way to get a higher earning career would be to go get an MBA. Because if you get an MBA, then that's like, that's like kind of the one thing where it's like, you know, I can't go work directly in the tech industry. I can't go work in, uh, I can't go join a law firm. I can't do any of those things. Uh, but if I go get an MBA, that's kind of like the one way to sort of wash the stank off you of like whatever weird thing you were doing before the MBA. It's like now you're just like a fresh, clean cut, tie wearing MBA and, person. And now the MBA is the stink itself. Exactly, exactly. But like that's like a form of reinvention. And so I thought I should go get an MBA. And what ended up happening was I had, uh, at the time I was doing mental coaching. And one of my mental coaching clients was a senior director at PayPal. And he was starting a startup. And he told me, hey, instead of going doing that MBA, why don't you come join my random startup? Uh, and, I, and I knew nothing about startups at this time. Like I had no frame of reference, you know, didn't read anything about what went on in Silicon Valley. So this was like an MCAT training video startup, which was like, now hearing that out loud, I'm like, why would I do that? Uh, but I was like, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a very plausible, upstanding business. Totally, I don't see why that can't take over the world. And so I was like, cool, I wanna join your startup. What, you know, what should I do? Uh, and he's like, okay, we need somebody to do marketing. And I was like, well, I don't know the first fucking thing about marketing, but I guess I can learn. And he was like a few months away from funding. So I went to try to learn everything I could about marketing. And it turned out that there were all these articles, like so this is you know, like 2014, right? And in 2014, the big buzzword in Silicon Valley was growth hacking. And so I was like, okay, I need to become a growth hacker. And everything I read about growth hackers said that growth hackers need to be able to code. So I started learning, teaching myself how to code. And the more I started coding, the more I realized like, hey, I'm really enjoying coding. I'm picking it up really quickly. And I just, I hate marketing. And so I had this epiphany that maybe if I learn how to code as fast as I could, before these guys got funding and this guy, you know, quit his job and started this company, I could learn how to be a developer and then get on my knees and beg them to take me on as a developer and build a product instead of being a marketer, right? That was my master plan. And so I applied to every single bootcamp in the Bay Area, moved out here, went to App Academy, blah, blah, blah. Right, right, right. And the, the punchline of the story is that the guy never left his job, never started the company, which probably was, right, <laughs> probably was the right choice. And I ended up getting hired by App Academy and taking a totally different route. But like, it was not some master plan yeah. for me to go in the tech industry. It was just always me sort of making what I thought were sort of locally optimal decisions, given what was in front of me. Now, now when you're playing poker, one thing you learn, you know, you start to see the decision tree unfold way ahead of, of when it actually unfolds. And so you say like, okay, I've got these two cards, here's the spectrum of ways that that could unfold. And if it goes in each of those directions, here's the spectrum of ways that that could unfold. And you sort of learn to like, you know, parse these different decision trees. You learn like, okay, this, this area of the decision tree is never gonna happen. This one's more likely to happen. This one is higher upside. So I should actually think through that decision tree a little bit further. I think that, that parsing that decision tree, at least for me personally, and you know, the, parsing the, the decision tree that's weighted in terms of expected value or the Markov chain, whatever you want to call it, 
That is quite valuable as a broad career strategy. Is, is there any way that we can get better at, at developing those uh, decision trees? Or is that something that you need to play poker to develop? <laughs> you definitely don't need to play poker to develop that skill. I, I would agree with you that I think that is one of the things that I am good at and that I inherited from my time as a poker player. I think it's really, I, if I had to really encapsulate it, I'd say it's just like thinking strategically about your career in such a way that you leave your emotions out of your thinking, right? That sounds kind of cold or calculating, but I think what I mean by that is that it's very easy, like here's kind of another way to get at the same thing I'm trying to say, is every single point in my life, every single career pivot that I've made in my life, I've felt like a fraud. I felt like I don't know enough, I'm not really good enough at this, like I don't really know what I'm doing, I've only been doing this for X amount of time, like am I just fooling people, am I fooling myself? It's scary to go and do something new, especially something you're not good at, and to leave behind the thing that you are already good at. Right? And to some degree, that was the decision I made when I left poker, because you know I was, I was a profitable poker player. I could make probably a lot more money playing poker at that time than I could doing anything else, even conceivably. But it's that willingness to say, look, I know this is the right decision for me, even though I will feel scared, even though I will feel like an imposter, even though I will feel uncertain about myself all the time, I'm gonna do it anyway, right? I think making that decision is really hard for most people. And being a poker player kind of trains you over the years of doing that kind of thing. It never makes it easy, but it makes it doable. But I don't think that's the only way to get there. I think the, the way that you ultimately become better at that sort of thing is just doing it. It's just making it a part of your life and your identity that you are somebody who makes hard choices and puts yourself in difficult circumstances. And I think the, the, the other aspect of it that I guess I would say is something that I don't think I learned from poker, but I really learned myself, is in a way just having faith in myself that I'll figure it out, that I'm resourceful. That like even though I'll be scared, even though I'll be you know, angry and I'll be, I'll be staying up late at night, I won't be able to get sleep and like, it'll, be, it'll be enormously challenging when I get there. But just like locking myself in the room and throwing away the key, right? That is an enormously valuable skill in life, right? Because I don't think it's that like, like I know that I'm a coward. I know that when actually faced with the alternative in front of me of like the easy thing and the hard thing, I'll choose the easy thing every single time. So what I do is I engineer my life in such a way that I don't have a fucking choice, that I can't choose the easy thing, right? That in my moment of bravery, I can say, great, I can't do the easy thing anymore. The key's in the garbage, you know, and I'm already on the boat going to the new island. I guess I'm gonna have to figure it out, right? That skill, I think, is something that is, uh, I found it to be very, very rare in people, and that's something I think has propelled me in my career. We are all looking for a dream job, and thanks to the internet, it's gotten easier to get matched up with an ideal job. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified job seekers with inspiring companies. Once you have been vetted and accepted to Vettery, companies reach out directly to you because they know you are a high-quality candidate. The Vettery matching algorithm shows off your profile to hiring managers looking for someone with your skills, your experience, and your preferences. And because you've been vetted and you're a highly qualified candidate you should be able to find something that suits your preferences. To check out Vettery and apply, go to vettery.com slash sedaily for more information. Vettery is completely free for job seekers. 
There's 4,000 growing companies from startups to large corporations that have partnered with Vettery and will have a direct connection to access your profile. There are full-time jobs, contract roles, remote job listings with a variety of technical roles in all industries. And you can sign up on Vettery.com slash SEDaily and get a $500 bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Get started on your new career path today. Get connected to a network of 4,000 companies and get vetted and accepted to Vettery by going to Vettery.com slash SEDaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a new sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Let's do some audience questions. So, all right. Start you with mic? You, you have a mic. So, so you brought up uh, that we're going to look back in the past at this algorithm and dopamine heads that we're constantly taking. Why is that not the incentive shift for a swap to crypto that you also brought that is lacking space for people who don't want um, So you're talking specifically... I'm going to repeat every question just so, so it gets recorded at higher fidelity. So you're saying, uh, you know, we are going to have some, some shift to decentralized technologies why is that not going to kind of unseat Google, et cetera? No, it was bringing up the issue of algorithmic dopamine hits oh, right. as the huge issue that we're going to look back on. Oh, right, right. And why isn't that the incentive shift that is needed for something like crypto? Oh, okay. Okay, so, so you know, we're going to have this shift to shift towards crypto. Uh, why isn't that going to uh, allow for an incentive shift of the kinds of things that result in this dopamine rush addiction of... Uh, things like Google and Facebook. Yeah, to avoid. So it, it sounds like what you're implying is that basically, you know, so we all eventually we're all going to recognize, or like society, I think at large will recognize that. But I think people will largely recognize that the ways in which we're using Google and Facebook and all these sort of algorithmic feed type products is ultimately bad for the human psyche, right? And so the the question is, like, why won't this accelerate a, an adoption of crypto? Uh, I think the answer is that like the way you solve that problem. Like the solution to that problem is not necessarily crypto, right? The solution to that problem is like stop using algorithmic feeds or stop using things that basically gamify your emotions or your attention. You don't need crypto for that. You just need better, you just need products that basically turn the noise level down a few decibels. Crypto is one way to implement that, but it's by no means the only way to implement that. And if anything, it's like in a way a harder way to implement that than just doing it in a, in a normal centralized server and, and just normal web app. So I think like generally speaking, the applications of the form like, well, you could do this with crypto are not good things to expect crypto to end up winning. Like the place where crypto is probably going to win is places where you would say, you cannot do this but for crypto. What are applications that look like that, that have that shape? Those are the places where crypto is likely to win. Otherwise, always and forever, centralized services are going to be easier to run, easier to create, and cheaper to operate than crypto networks. So if you can have a centralized version of it, you should expect there probably to be a centralized version of it. So even with an algorithmic feed, like I imagine if there's some kind of massive, you know, uh, uh, governmental backlash against social media products, that probably there would be like very onerous regulations around, you know, when, you know how often you can surface pop-ups and show people numbers and likes and I don't know, something like along these lines, right? You can imagine ham-fisted and smarter ways of doing this kind of regulation. I think it would all still live in centralized server land. So back to the last topic that we sort of talked about around engineering your life to take the risks and to get to where you need to be 
guess to make uh, I guess to make a little more concrete. I know you mentioned that hunger sort of helped indoctrinate that mindset, but what specifically are the things that you do to engineer your life to avoid, you know, to eliminate the easy option, right? And what sort of an example where maybe you did not make the hard choice, and what was the gap in the thought process that led to that? So, so the question was, how do you engineer your life to take risk more intelligently? Yeah, very good question. So one, things that come to mind right now, kind of just like riffling through choices I think I've made in my life. So one is making big public commitments. I think it's something that people don't really do enough. And I do a lot. Like it's sort of like a default thing for me. That's like, you know, uh, Here's, here's a very simple micro example, right? Is uh, I was at uh, I was at a blockchain conference, and blockchain conferences, if you guys have never been to one, like they're very exhausting because it's just nonstop stuff. And like some, like I, I tend to prefer ones that have a lot of um, like academic research content, and that those are even tougher to get through a lot of times because like there's no razzle dazzle. It's like very very dry, very hard to get through. Um, but you know, a lot of times I go to those things because like I want to learn. I know there's a lot that I don't know at the cutting edge of cryptography and distributed systems and stuff like that. So what I have done several times now when I go to a conference is I tweet out like on day one of the conference, I am going to live tweet notes for like the majority of talks that I see today. And it turns out like it really sucks to do that. It's not fun. It's very unpleasant. And every time I do it, I'm like, why the f did I agree to do this? Because like I'm, you know, instead of just like hanging back and like falling asleep and checking my phone and like being utterly bored with what's going on on screen, which like a lot of times I am. Instead, I'm like trying to understand what they're saying and writing it down and summarizing it and tweeting it, right? Uh, which is very tiring. But I do that because I know it will level me up. And I know that if I don't do that, I'm gonna do the easy option of just like kind of sitting around for a couple talks, zoning out, and then like checking my phone and like, you know, going out and hanging out in the, in the break room or whatever, right? And so there's sort of a lot of little things like that, but then even bigger things of just like, you know, telling people like, hey, I'm going to go read this book and then I'm going to go tell you what I think about it, right? And the, the more public commitments that you make that, that you know people are going to hold you to, like, I mean, one of the most powerful motivators for any human being is just embarrassment, you know? And just feeling like, like you're just full of shit and having the people around you see you that way. So if, if you have a reputation that you feel is worth protecting, one of the most powerful things you can do with it is to motivate yourself. Sorry, I, I, leaving a job. She said leaving a job. Leaving a job. Yeah. That I think is another good ah. example, right? So like, I think a lot of people have lots of trouble leaving their, leaving their job. And the more strongly you make that commitment that I'm going to leave on X date, regardless of what happens, and I will just like engineer everything else around that hard constraint, because like I've committed to my partner or my boss or you know, other people around me or whatever in some kind of public way, that I think again is like a very powerful forcing function that just makes shit happen. Yeah. You know. By the way, I, that's what I did for software engineering daily, and I just had a faith that I would be able to find enough podcast advertisers that would pay me enough money to pay for rent, and uh, worked. I mean, yeah, could have could have gone terribly, but I ha I capped the downside. Right. right? I right. said, okay, I've got this much money in the bank. This is going to last me for four months. I think I can find advertisers within three months. I found them within mo one month. Yeah. Because my back was against the wall. There's, totally. there's a lot of value to putting your back against the wall, especially when you live in America. Because So if you live in America and you're a U.S. citizen, 
your back's not really against the wall if you, you, know, right. if you have good health and, and so yeah. on. Yeah, and, and you know, to, to be fair, like there are, there are you know, for many people, like you have other hard constraints that makes it harder to take risks, right? Like risk is a continuum. Not everybody can take the same amount of risk. That said, I would guess that everybody in this room, given that you're all software engineers and you live in the Bay Area, probably underweight how much risk you can safely take in your life. Like the amount of stuff that would have to go wrong for things to actually be bad in your life is way larger than you probably think it is, right? Like, so, I, so for that reason, I, I'm not concerned about any of you guys going out and being really reckless with yourselves because the chance that you are too risky is just astronomically low. So yeah, I would say like, however risky you think is too risky, like be slightly more risky than that. And that's probably the right amount. Going back to the discussion of risk and learning, we talk a lot about risk. And when I look at your career, I see risk and learning. Well, it's a pattern. I want to dive a little bit more into the learning. How do we know you're doing real learning versus fake learning? And a weird metaphor I'll give you is, I, there's two modes of transportation. Some is surfing, and one is driving and stop, go traffic on one of that isn't, I'm not getting better at driving. I'm probably, I'm saying I'm a mediocre driver, I'm not becoming a better driver. Surfing though, you get better each time you take risks and you iterate. Is going back to tech and other, other things, how do we differentiate between learning, real authentic learning versus I'm going about doing the process, but I'm not kind of getting more information, I'm not getting more insights, and I'm not kind of doing real learning. I'm just sitting on one and driving. Yeah. Real learning versus fake learning. So what does fake learning look like? So I think the properties of fake learning, I would guess, are doing the same thing in the same context without getting any meaningful feedback. Not being on the, like basically doing things that are easy for you are probably situations where you're not really learning. And I guess I would say like just, you know, not being very mindful of what you're doing, right? So like for the most part, when you're just kind of unconsciously going about anything in your life, you're not really learning. So kind of by just inverting that set of principles, that you can arrive at what it means to do real learning and how to make a learning environment more palatable to stronger learning. So one is make sure you're getting tight feedback loops, right? And no matter how tight your feedback loops are, try to make them tighter, try to make them faster, try to make them closer to the thing you're doing, right? Like if you can get uh, feedback on your code the moment you're writing it, that's better than getting it a day later, that's better than getting it a week later, and it's way better than getting it a year later, right? So that, that's one of the reasons why things like pair programming or why things like you know working directly writing code with somebody who you see as a as a mentor or somebody to give you feedback is so powerful for learning is because the feedback loop is tighter than almost anything else right um, so that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't think very deeply about is how tight can I make the feedback loop in this thing that I'm doing second thing being mindful I think is generally yes you need to be paying attention in order to, to learn things really well always being on the threshold of discomfort so this is one thing that I think a lot of people don't really do very well, is that they basically, like, they, they get to a level where they're okay, and then they just, like, stay okay. They basically don't try to do harder and harder things, right? And the, way, the, like, the only way that people become world-class at anything is by continually staying at this threshold of just hard enough that, like, I can barely do it, but I'm not that good at it. Right? Continually pushing yourself in that direction of things that give you a mild amount of discomfort but that you can ultimately accomplish, you want to stay in that band for as long as possible throughout your development. So that's, I think, one thing that people really get wrong a lot of the time is that they get to a level of competent and then they just basically stay there and then their jobs are easy. If your job is easy, you're not learning enough. Uh, 
persons, if you said you contribute to effective altruism, how do you uh, optimize for the causes you select for? And I believe this takes certain income away from you. So how do you optimize the things or uh, activities you spend on? So it's a two-part question. Yeah. Okay. How, how do you approach effective altruism and how does effective altruism affect your life? Sure. So uh, I'll, start, I'll start with the first part of that question. So um, in, terms of, in terms of causes that I donate to, I think there, there are a lot of different ways to think rigorously about which cause area you want to donate your money to. I tend to think that in the world we live in today, one of the most underappreciated risks in, in kind of facing humanity for the next several decades is going to be the risk of AI development, AI developing faster than we know how to safely use and control it. I think there, there, there are more dramatic and less dramatic versions of this, but I think that the simplest way to, to state it in my mind is that you know, so much of our society and our world and our infrastructure is going to be running on uh, artificial, intelligent, uh, uh, artificial intelligences, right? We're kind of building this stuff faster than we really understand how it works. And right now for things like, you know, you know SEO or things like, you know, serving ads, that's okay. It's all right to be having a black box kind of running fairly niche parts of, of our financial or economic infrastructure. But when it's running more and more parts of society, and making larger and larger decisions that relate to warfare or you know, things like you know, biochemical components of drugs and just things that are very, very difficult to really understand how does any of these things work and interact with each other. We want to know a lot more about how to make these things safe before they start controlling large and larger parts of, of our world. Right? So I think the development of this technology is running way faster than we know how to safely use it. And sort of it's, you know, it's kind of like, we're sort of having a little Manhattan Project moment right now in AI, and I think it could, it could happen where we arrive at an atom bomb a lot faster than anybody knows how to deal with an atom bomb. And I think we, it, seeing kind of how close we have gotten and having had a number of pretty terrible nuclear events, but how close we've gotten to even worse ones, I think we want to be mindful of how much we invest into safety and, and precaution before we take on this sort of you know, AI kind of eating the world. So that's the first area of where I tend to, to, to donate my, the, my, my income. Now, as for how I kind of manage my life around the fact that I try to donate a third of my income, the answer is like not very much. Like it's actually pretty easy to, to like it's kind of like, I think if you donate almost all of your income and you live on like a fixed amount of money, like that's pretty hard. But if you donate a percentage of your income, then it's actually pretty straightforward, right? It's kind of like when I was making 100K, it was basically like I was making 70K, right? Because I donated a third. And it's like, okay, it's not impossible to live off 70K, right? When I was making 130K, then I'm making, you know, I was like making 95. Okay, it's not impossible to live off 95, right? So you're sort of like, you're kind of just like a little bit behind all of your peers. But basically, like, as long as your income is scaling, right? You sort of, you know, like I, I take UberXs now. I used to always take Uber pools, but like, it's kind of not a big deal. And I think one of the things that it's easy to do when you're, especially if you're donating a lot of income and you're feeling very, you know, uh, very frugal about what you spend your money on, it's easy to become overly frugal or overly conservative. And I think almost always when you can make the choice of saving time with money, you should almost always do it. Because time is just so valuable, especially you know, just in the process of building your own career. The more time you can unlock for yourself, the better. So any way you can spend money to unlock time, like you should prioritize spending money on that over anything else. And so it's kind of like unlock as much free time as you can until you can start spending more money on just consumption goods. You know, but that, to my mind, that comes fairly late in that, in, you know, that, that process. Good. First, I want to say completely agree with what you're saying around maintaining a degree of uh, discomfort in your life. That advice is phenomenal. I'm just like, right. Um, I just have a kind of technical question on 
like a rerun of machine blockchains and permissionless blockchains. Um, I'm curious what your perspective is on like, are we going to see sort of an equal amount of permissioned blockchains alongside permissionless? They explain the differences, and I'm just curious about like, is the world going to concentrate fully around permissionless blockchains, uh, public, fully permissionless blockchains, or are we going to see a lot of heterogeneity on both sides? So the question is, I guess, first of all, what is a permissioned blockchain versus a permissionless blockchain? And uh, and how widely will each of these be adopted? Sure. So uh, permissionless blockchain is the easiest to define. Permissionless blockchain is like Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the cryptocurrencies that you can speculate on. These are all permissionless. And by permissionless, what that means is that the only, all you need in order to go get some money and start playing around is by, you know, just computing an ECDSA uh, public and private key and then you, know, you can start receiving money or start doing interactions, right? So permissionless literally means that you don't need to get permission from anybody in order to start playing. A permission blockchain is one, generally speaking, that will be run by a specific company. And the idea is that only certain people are allowed to participate in this blockchain, right? So it's not that you can just create an ECDSA key and start sending transactions. Instead, it's like, okay, this is like the JP Morgan blockchain. And JP Morgan runs all the servers that are the, the nodes that are full nodes of the blockchain and that also are consensus uh, participating nodes in the blockchain. And if you want to send a transaction to this blockchain, you can't. You have to be invited into the blockchain by somebody who currently is either running the blockchain or, or belongs in this blockchain system. So that's the difference between permissioned and permissionless. And most of the like enterprise blockchain solutions you see, like uh, you know, like Walmart's blockchain where they're tracking lettuce or the JP Morgan stablecoin that's going to use uh, their own private blockchain, these are all permissioned chains. So not just any random person could start transacting you know, JP Morgan stablecoins, you have to be invited in. So it's an invite-only network. So what do I believe about whether, you know, which of these will succeed? It's likely there will be many more permission, permissioned blockchains just by number, because literally all you need for a permission blockchain is just like somebody to run Hyperledger once on one server somewhere, right? Like technically, okay, that's a permission blockchain. So it's, it's kind of like asking, you know, how many open source projects will there be? Well, there will probably be a lot of them, but there will be very, very few that actually get a whole lot of traction. And so there'd be this whole long tail of like enterprise blockchains that probably nobody uses, and then a small number of them that actually get traction. But the permissionless blockchains, right, are probably the primary things where crypto or blockchains in general enable uh, new kinds of things that weren't before possible. So a common criticism of permission blockchains is that it's kind of like, well, how is this different from just like a, I don't know, like a, just like a zookeeper network, right? Or like just, you know, how is this different from just like a database that you manage, right? It's like, okay, well, there are five people instead of just one person because we have, you know, a round robin consensus system with like, you know, it's like JP Morgan and, you know, UBS and then some other bank and, you know, fine, okay, it's not just JP Morgan that controls it, but it's these five banks, right? Okay, that's kind of different. That has a different flavor to it. It's run by a consortium instead of by a single server and a single party. But the properties of, an, of a permission blockchain are much more similar to what you can do with normal software. And there are systems like that that are not owned by anybody in particular, that are shared by a lot of, a lot of parties that don't need a permission blockchain. This was possible before permission blockchains. Permission blockchains might be a nicer architecture with which to do this, but fundamentally you could have done this anyway, right? Uh, whereas to build Bitcoin, we don't know of any other way to build a Bitcoin, right? Like there's nothing, like people have tried, people tried for decades before Satoshi Nakamoto came up with the Bitcoin design to create a decentralized form of money. And every single system that came up before Bitcoin failed in one way or another, uh, Bitcoin was the only one to succeed. So in some very strong sense, we don't know how to build that. 
without using decentralized blockchains. But for permission networks, we generally do. They just have some kind of nice features at the margin that make things better. So that's why I think permission blockchains are not likely to create quite as much value as permissionless blockchains, but I expect there will probably be some, but most of them will end up not ever getting used by anybody. Okay, so we're gonna uh, call it quits at this point. I wanna just give another thanks to Hasib. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Um, And thanks so much for Jeff for putting this together. This is really great, and you're a fantastic interviewer. So, and for Jeff. I want to thank also Titus for kind of managing and overseeing this event and Cloudflare, of course. With that, you know, again, if, if anybody's interested, uh, you can come to the Find Collabs Hackathon Saturday at App Academy. And let's hang out for a bit and talk. Thanks again. GoCD is a continuous delivery tool created by ThoughtWorks. It's open source, it's free to use, and GoCD has all the features that you need for continuous delivery. You can model your deployment pipelines without installing any plugins, you can use the value stream map to visualize your end-to-end -end workflow, and if you use Kubernetes, GoCD is a natural fit to add continuous delivery to your cloud-native project. With GoCD on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow, you let GoCD provision and scale your infrastructure on the fly, and GoCD agents use Kubernetes to scale as needed. Check out gocd.org slash sedaily and learn how you can get started. GoCD was built with the learnings of the ThoughtWorks engineering team, and they have talked in such detail about building the product in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily, ThoughtWorks was very early to the continuous delivery trend, and they know about continuous delivery as much as almost anybody in the industry. It's great to always see continued progress on GoCD with new features like Kubernetes integrations, so you know that you're investing in a continuous delivery tool that is built for the long term. You can check it out yourself at gocd.org slash sedaily. Wow! 